think as a young bloke, it's, it's very rare that we've got, we've actually been given the skills on how do I feel? What am I going through? What are some of the things that are making me feel this way? Um, and I certainly didn't know how to understand it, but I didn't know how to articulate it either. That's Jack Jones, Program Director at the Banksia Project, a free men's mental health service built on training up everyday blokes to help men in their local communities. Sport was that outlet to, um, to I guess, avoid the challenges rather than face them. Jack's come a long way in a short time. In his early 20s, he was in crisis, suffering from clinical depression that drove him to be suicidal. Daily, I was suicidal, um, trying to work out, you know, um, how am I going to get through the next 24 hours. Growing up, he relied on his sporting prowess for validation and associated his identity with being that person who was always there to help others. The problem was he didn't know how to look after himself. So unfortunately, I, I guess I developed a coping mechanism of, of my self-worth was based on external gratification. Through years of work, Jacks shifted his perception of what true success is and what a man should be. He's changed from someone who hated being left alone with his thoughts to someone who's at peace with who he is, on a mission to put others in touch with their own personal power. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. All right, Jack, how did your life uh, appear from the outside looking in growing up? Mate, growing up, I think uh, I think from the outside looking in, it probably looked like it was all together. Um, I was that young bloke that would always, I could get along with, with most people, if not almost everyone. Um, you know, I played sport and uh, sport was my outlet and I actually did quite well at, uh, at sport and you know I had amazing opportunities I had you know opportunities to travel overseas with that sport um, you represent you know my, my local area all kind of stuff and and play some international teams and things like that which was amazing um, so on the outside I was probably the the big um, tough rugby player who had it all together who had a pretty clear map worked out um, straight out of school into, you know, university and had a couple of uni- university degrees and things like that. So I think from the outside, it probably looked like I had it all together. And what was your life like outside of sport when you were growing up as a teenager and, and then as a young man, what else was going on? Mate, it, it probably looked like everything was perfect. Uh, I had great friends, you know, I always had really great relationships around me, but I think um, potentially closer to home and, and for myself personally, probably wasn't as together as I'd say everyone else thought. I, I had a, a family structure around me, but perhaps uh, not as, um, I guess, together as, as probably what I needed at the time. Um, and so I, for me, sport was that outlet to, um, to, I guess, avoid the challenges rather than face them. As in your family wasn't actually physically around enough? Yeah, look, it was quite a disjointed uh, family unit, uh, parents separated, um, you know, amazing opportunities for, for me, um, but a lot of that meant that um, there wasn't always parents around, you know, they might have been working to make sure that we could have those opportunities, things like that, um, which just meant there was quite a fragmented relationship with my parents or lack of emotional connection with my parents. You know, we had a, we had a, um, a relationship that the emotional uh, capacity for that relationship was very minimal and, and particularly um, thinking about my old man it was you know you don't talk about emotions that's not what you do it was that stereotypical bloke 
mm. environment um, yep. that, you know, I'm sure that's how he grew up. And, and so it wasn't normal to, to talk about your emotions and, and seek help or anything like that. So I think I quickly adopted those behaviours and, and made them part of my routine as well. So what impact did that have on you in terms of shutting down emotionally and just how you perceived the world around you as a, as a result of that upbringing? Look, um, you know, years of work has led me, and I think I've got some answers now, but I'm sure I'll probably need to go and refine them continuously. But I'd say first and foremost, um, probably the biggest challenge I faced was that concept of self-worth, that to be considered worthy um, of, of myself was seeking gratification and approval from others. And is that um, because so you, didn't, you didn't get it from your parents? Yeah, I'd say probably or, or perhaps um, perhaps I did and, and maybe I didn't perceive it the right way, but my expectation was that I probably needed a little bit more gratification and, and reinforcement probably at a younger age. Um, and then so unfortunately I, I guess I developed a coping mechanism of, of my self-worth was based on external gratification and it was looking to always do right by other people so that I could feel good about myself. And so um, I suppose sport's perfect for that because you're getting that instant feedback and if you're a good player, other people are telling you how good you are all the time and you get that status and those feelings that you were looking for. Do you feel like that was a big driver for you in why you played? Look, I, I think so. Probably at the time, I, I certainly wasn't aware of that. I, I played because I was good at it and I played because I definitely enjoyed it. Um, but I think it probably defined me a little bit too much um, in terms of uh, that self-worth was based on how I played and my performance and what achievements I made in that sport. Um, and, and I think that's where it can become fragmented. And, you know, you hear the story all the time um, of the athlete that uh, stops playing sport or for some reason and, and or can't perform or whatever that is and, and the whole um, reinforcement loop of self-worth is, is completely shattered because um, that sport tends to make up the identity. But there wasn't that expectation from your family to be an elite athlete? No, certainly not. Um, I think it was they saw that as as an outlet. Um, they saw that as something I was good at, and so they were happy to keep providing me with everything I needed for the opportunity to pursue that. Um, but as I said, I think because of that, it maybe uh, damaged some of our emotional connections and um, how close we actually were as a, as a unit. You know, it was uh, avoiding family events because I was at that game or at that representative thing, and. Um, or if I was at the, the family barbecue or whatever it is, it was always house rugby and that was it. Um, and, and so I think I've very much developed my identity and, and self-worth around that athlete piece and, and it was do well at sport to be a good person. Or, or alternatively, um, I think one of the other probably challenges that I, I developed is that I felt like I needed to do and help and serve others in order to feel good. And, and so that was also involved in probably not having the closest family unit is that when I was with friends, families, or, you know, with other people, I felt like I had to impress them um, so that I felt good. But you got through your young life, most of it, I'm not saying that you're old now, but I, I mean, those, those late teenage years uh, without it really becoming a, an obvious problem to you in terms of being a, a burden on your health? It was something that you didn't look into that much or that perhaps you were able to bury without giving too much consideration? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd never even considered the fact um, that perhaps there were some underlying issues. I think I was so socially connected um, throughout, I would say, the late teens in, you know, in high school and then moving up to, to Sydney, um, I'm from Canberra, but making that move up to the big smoke and 
um, living on campus and things like that, I was always socially connected and always socially supported, which meant there wasn't a whole lot of time to actually stop and reflect on on perhaps why I needed that constant connection or constant How did you feel about alone time? Hated it. Avoided it at all costs. Um, and I think that's probably what um, started to pop up is, you know, I, I think my, my schedule when I was, um, you know, sort of 20 was work 40 hours a week, um, study full time, as well as training 20, 25 hours a week and trying to maintain a social life around that. So um, it was avoid so, uh, alone time at all costs. Busy was a good thing and busy was a badge of honour. Um, so that I didn't have to face myself and probably some of the challenges that was actually going on underneath. Because you just didn't like to sit with yourself. Did you know why at the time? Do you feel like you were aware of why that made you uncomfortable or is it just something that you tried not to think about at all costs? I, I didn't know why, certainly not. Um, but I think as well I felt that if I wasn't achieving, if I wasn't um, you know, working, making that income or if I wasn't supporting myself or if I wasn't training on a Sunday, even if I'd played rugby the day before, I wasn't worthy. Um, I, I always felt like I had to prove myself and it was more to be proved. And if I didn't tick those boxes, um, then I wasn't worthy of, of my own company, let alone anyone else's. So for me, it was always this constant uh, feeling of, of, I guess, um, shame or guilt and going, I need to prove myself and, and prove myself to myself and to other people as well. How's your definition of success changed from then to now? Look, um, it's it's changed massively. I, I always use the example. I remember sitting at um, the graduation of my master's degree when I was 23, I think, um, and looking at the guys or, or the students that were getting their PhD. And, and for me, all I could think about was that's what's next. That's what I have to go and do. Um, it wasn't sit there and appreciate, you know, all the hard work that I'd already put in to get to that point. It was there's more to be done. Um, and for me, that was success. It was, one, it was achieving those things, but two, it was probably the reinforcement and the um, approval that I received when I was doing those things. It was people telling me, wow, you're only sort of 22, 23 and you're um, completing a master's degree or, you know, you're trying to pursue elite sport, all those sorts of things. And, and for me, that was success. Um, whereas I think now I, I certainly think there are more important things um, that I, I've tried to reframe my identity on going, yeah, if you can play elite sport, that's great. If you can make that great job, that's that's amazing. But my concept of self-worth now is about being a good friend, um, being a supportive partner, trying to be a good family member. And if you can then do things on top of that, that's amazing. Um, but I think focusing on those fundamentals first and foremost is, is what I now see as success um, and something I try and I guess, reinforce every day. Obviously, a lot's happened between 20 and, and 27 to get you to that place. Where did the sport go? I Unfortunately, I just couldn't stay on the field. Um, I had as many injuries as you could think about. Um, I had some fractures in my spine. Um, I had every sort of limb hurt in some way, but ultimately it was taken away from concussion. Um, I was at the point that I was making tackles without even hitting my head and and getting concussed and, and, you know, I'd get home from dinner and ask my partner, you know, what, what was on the plate two hours ago? Um, cause I just had no concept of, I, I couldn't remember anything. Um, Shit. and so I figured it was about time to, to give it up. Um, and, and so that was probably three years ago where I had to, I guess, reflect and say, you know, what's next. So was it that being taken away where the real trouble started or had it already crept in with the injuries 
Look, it, it certainly already crept in. Um, I think that was probably the start of my healing process um, at that point where I had to give up that identity and self-reflect. And, and But before that, uh, I, I was really struggling. I was in an environment which was a very um, stereotypical male environment. Again, I was ticking boxes. And so everyone on the outside probably thought I had things together. But I think there were some significant challenges that were going on behind the scenes that First and foremost, it was my my own concept of, of well-being. Um, I was d- diagnosed with severe mental illness. Um, I was daily, I was suicidal, um, trying to work out, you know, um, how am I going to get through the next 24 hours or, more importantly, how am I not? Um, and I guess for me it was I really um, wasn't healthy. On the, on, on the outside, definitely probably looked it, definitely sounded it, and I was really good at putting on that mask and telling other people what they wanted to hear or, most importantly, flipping the script. And if someone started to pry about my well-being, I'd focus on how they are um, and, and focus on them and talk about them and it meant I could completely um, avoid the, the conversation. But I think I felt extremely lonely and extremely disconnected from society um, and that was something I really struggled with and I think that was probably one of the fundamental principles of, of my mental illness was that loneliness and disconnection it sounds like you're a master of having that mask on though absolutely um i, I got really good at saying yeah mate i'm good how are you uh, i think we've all seen it but someone asks how you are and you've got all these things running through your head that are challenging but say, yeah all good um and the the thing i i struggled with is first i didn't know how to articulate what i was going through i think as a young bloke it's it's very rare that we've got we've actually been given the skills on how do I feel? What am I going through? What are some of the things that are making me feel this way? Um, and I certainly didn't know how to understand it, but I didn't know how to articulate it either. So if I did work it out, I, I then wanted to talk about it and try and share and connect with other blokes around me to say this is what I was going through and I had no idea how to articulate it. Mm. Um, and then I think the next step of that was when I finally mustered up the courage to tell someone that I needed some help and that I'd been diagnosed, etc. My best mate, the most caring bloke you could ever think of, had no idea how to respond because he doesn't have the skills to, to manage that conversation safely either. Yeah, and how common is that? I suppose that's why we do what we do and we're trying to be part of more blokes hearing these conversations and, and learning how to have them because it's it's by no means a, a rare story and can be equally as difficult for the friend or the support network to know how to respond as it is for the person who's gotten to that place where they have enough courage to to bring it up and it's not a it's not something that has traditionally been taught in schools or that you can really pick up unless you go through it um and obviously very tricky to navigate when did you start be start to become sorry when did you start to become depressed then um before you got to the the state where you were suicidal i guess i was probably about 22 23 um and as i said i felt very disconnected from the people around me. Um, I think I probably knew that the wheels were starting to fall off. There was no way I could maintain the schedule that I, I had, um, working full-time, training full-time, studying full-time. It was just at some point the candle was going to burn out. Um, for me, it was, however, it was never the um, depression of can't get out of bed for the day. It was, you know, I think it was do more things, put more things in my schedule and probably underperforming all of them. Um, because it was better than, and easier than, than me having to sit there and actually face what I was going through, as I said. Mm. Um, so for me, it was probably that, that early age, 22, 23, of, of um, first receiving that diagnosis, being medicated for, for mental illness, but also um, 
trying to understand what the hell was going on inside my head. And what was that voice in your head through that time? What was your self-talk like and, and what sort of things did it say? Look, it was extremely negative uh, and pessimistic. It was, you know, you're not worthy. Um, it was, you're not worthy of, of one, what you're living um, and what you have around you, but you're not worthy of anyone's time or energy. Um, it was definitely a sense of imposter syndrome. I think we've all heard about it. It was, you know, you're faking it. You know, you're not, you're not, you don't deserve all this, this stuff and, and you haven't earned it. Um, and then it was, it was really about, you know, um, do you really want to be here? You know, is it easier for you if you're not here? Is it easier for everyone else around you if you're not here? And then it was about how we execute that and how we, we go through with that mm. plan. So it certainly wasn't healthy. What was it like living with that in your head? Did it feel like it was actually you or was it like sort of having a passenger with you that was always there bringing you down? I think I, I probably, you know, I, I let it go for too long. And so I think that was me. I, I, I had adopted that as me um, and, and that was me and my persona and that was what I offered to other people, which was a contributing cycle to say, okay, well, if that's all I am and that's all I offer to other people, um, then uh, maybe it's it's me as an identity. Because your self-worth was fully based on results and on the external and doing as much as you could and getting as much feedback as possible all the time. So that was the the variable that basically decided whether or not you were able to feel positive or not. So you're relinquishing your own personal power then because you're totally reliant on stuff that you can't necessarily control. And it sounds like you were either consciously or subconsciously trying to pack your schedule full of as much stuff as possible to try and make yourself feel like you were getting closer to having some value or worth or because you were maybe setting yourself up to fail in some ways as well because there was no way you were going to be able to do it all. What, how did you sort yeah. of perceive everything at that time? I think um, I certainly thought that filling my schedule, it was that was an opportunity to do more for other people. Um, you know, it was an opportunity for me to show that everything was okay because the person who's okay is the one who is ticking all those boxes. Um, I perceived what I was doing as uh, obviously very tough. It wasn't an easy circumstance in terms of doing all those things, but I, I perceived it as the necessary thing. Um, it's something I still work on today is going, you know, it's about a long process. It's not what we can do right now. It's about investing in the future, et cetera. Um, and, and so that was something that I, I felt I had to do everything all at once. Um, and if I hadn't done any of those things, then I, I, was, I was not worthy and I was um, not achieving. And obviously helping people isn't a bad thing. It's a great thing to want to stand up for others and, and be there for them and um, make that the focus of your attention. But were you doing that solely sort of so you didn't have to focus on yourself as sort of a distraction a lot of the time from the issues you actually had going on? I think it was probably just what I always knew. Um, it was what I'd always done and, and that kept me healthy for so long. That was a coping mechanism. Um, that I, I probably uh, my, my parents separated when I was quite young and I was the youngest sibling but was told, you know, look after your, your sister. Um, and, you know, I've had my parents say to me since that it was that day that I put the wall up. 
and it was that day that I stopped expressing my own emotions and it was all about helping others. Um, and, and so I think, you know, even until, you know, 22, 23, it was one, I, I, I didn't feel comfortable articulating what I needed to other people. Um, I, I would always feel like that was a burden on them. So if someone was telling me they were struggling and they asked something from me um, or they asked, you know, any sort of help or service, that was more important than any of my priorities. Um, and I would never prioritise what I felt or what I thought um, over someone else. It was always them first. What have you learned since then about the fact that you need to be able to take care of yourself and practice what you preach for yourself in order in order to be effective for others? Uh, there's nothing more important for me. Um, I think that there's a few things that obviously I'm still in the in the game of helping people, um, and I, I do thoroughly enjoy it. But what one of the things I've had to define is that my self worth isn't based on that. Um, I'm very good at helping people, and I actually do thoroughly enjoy it. But I'm a good person before that, you know. I'm I'm a good individual, I'm, uh, and I need to make, keep my own health and well-being. Um, whether that's physical fitness, whether it's balance, um, you know, whether it's um, sort of connection and social connection, not just work connection, a whole range of things. And and the more effectively I do that for myself um, and for my immediate circle, you know, I think of my partner and a few others. If I look after them, I'll be healthier and happier, um, and they'll look after me, obviously, as well. And then we can all make a, a greater impact in, in the community. When you were at rock bottom, who knew about it? Um, to be honest, it was the people that I had uh, gotten drunk with um, because that was the only, you know, when, when that occurred, um, I, you know, and it, was, it wasn't like I was always drinking or anything like that. I, I certainly didn't have a, a substance problem, but that was the only time my guard would come down because I couldn't control, I couldn't control the emotions. Um, so there was a couple of um, a friend, a couple of friends around me who had experienced, you know, me breaking down. Um, there was a couple of uh, significant, you know, partners or things like that, that that experienced it. But again, for those that did experience it, um, my number one priority was that they never said a word to anyone else, and that was a very selfish thing to do at the time. How did they respond? Absolutely no issue at all. Um, they they were so supportive and, and so generous to help me in any way they could. But I think, again, one of the challenges is that most, you know, 23, 24-year-olds don't know how to intervene there. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. Um, and, and sometimes that can be a barrier to um, me becoming more healthy is because perhaps they're not as well equipped as they need to be. Um, to support everyone else um, who may be struggling. Why was it so important to you that they didn't share it with anyone and that people didn't find out that you were struggling? Because that was weakness. Um, that was me admitting that I wasn't okay and that I probably needed some help or definitely needed some help. So I was um, seeing a clinician, um, but no one really knew about that. Um, you know, I was, I, I think I was fearful of, you know, what my rugby community would think if, if someone was going through that um, or, or going through sort of mental illness and that would affect, you know, that would impact a whole range of things in my life. And so um, the shame and the guilt that I felt was then exacerbated by I didn't want anyone else to know that I felt that way. Do you think that actually would have been the reality or had you just convinced yourself of that at the time? I think I'd absolutely just convince myself. Um, you know, 
I think uh, I, I, some of the communities that I was a part of were absolutely phenomenal um, and they are such supportive collective communities but I guess I still didn't feel like they actually knew who I was um, because the whole time I'd been engaged in them I was, I'd been putting on that mask. Um, so I felt that, again, I was always the first person to help someone else um, if I was involved in those communities but I always um, probably didn't fully immerse myself and didn't um, give them every part of me because I knew that I wasn't happy with part of me so I assumed they wouldn't be either. Those times where you were drunk and you told some of your mates about it, were you able to articulate it then in some way? Because it sounds like a, a big part of the challenge, as you mentioned before, is that it's a hard thing to actually explain why you're feeling emotions to that extent and why you can't make yourself feel better because it's so convoluted and complicated and that that is just going to reinforce that you should keep it to yourself because if you were to speak you wouldn't even know how to say what you mean and then you convince yourself that people are just going to think you're crazy or that you've lost the plot or whatever yeah look um it probably was a, a pretty tough situation for them because i was the uh sort of at the time about 115 120 kilo guy that was a sobbing mess um you know, and, and I couldn't, it was very hard for me to get out words to actually express um, what it was, but I think it became very clear that I wasn't okay. Um, and I think probably one of the few things that I was um, able to share because I think I'd been wanting to share it for a long time but didn't know how is that I was suicidal and, and I, I really needed help. I didn't know from who, I didn't know where, but I knew I, I needed some help. How did you get to a clinician? Did you take yourself there? No, I actually, um, one of my, my sports doctors who was so involved in all of my injuries, um, you know, for, as I said, for three or four years, probably identified that my mood was changing. And so she, um, I think she realised pretty quickly that I probably wasn't okay. And she said, go and see a sports psychologist um, based on performance. And, and he broke down some of the, the larger issues and said, okay, I think this is bigger than just sport. Um, and, and, you know, we, we started in the in the care pathway with other clinicians as well. And what was the process for you like of accepting that you had mental illness that you were facing and um, not being ashamed of it? How long did that take and what was the journey like on the way back, pulling yourself out of it? Look, I think um, I think that's uh, that journey is a very long one. For me, it was anyway. Obviously, everyone's different, but... For me, I needed to understand, firstly, um, I think one of the, the challenges I had is this wasn't just a rugby injury. This wasn't something if, if someone told you to do, um, you know, six reps every hour for the next three weeks, you'll fix your shoulder. So I would then go and do, you know, 12 reps every half an hour for the next six weeks to make sure I never had to think about it again. Um, one of the first things that I really had to work out was that this is never going to be a, a program that's just going to fix how I feel. Um, this is going to be a constant investment of behaviours and habits and patterns that actually maintained mental wellness and that if I was to let that um, system slack or drop off, that I would struggle with my mental health again. Um, so that was one of the first things. And then it did take quite a lot of time to work out, well, why was I feeling that way? What were some of the contributing factors that probably happened um, you know, in the past, what were some of the contributing factors right now and what could I then go and do to mitigate some of those challenges and, and make sure that I've got 
the the individual systems, but also the the surrounding support systems to make sure I can stay healthy on a daily basis. And what turned it around so that you didn't perceive opening up as a weakness anymore? Because your definition of what makes a man a man must have had to change. Absolutely. Um, I, I think for me, it's still not always easy to be vulnerable. Um, it's still not always easy to to tell, um, you know, the story of, of what I went through. And But what reinforces that? And again, you know, it's... I've come to terms with what I went through um, and I've come to terms with that, but I think I've also witnessed the impact that that can have on other people. Um, I've noticed some of the biggest, toughest guys I know um, coming to me one-on-one or, you know, in private situations and saying, I think I'm maybe not okay. Um, Because I I truly believe that for blokes, you've got to give permission for other blokes to be vulnerable. And the way I think to do that is to by, be, by being vulnerable yourself and, and telling that audience, I am comfortable with a conversation about emotion. I'm comfortable with a conversation about saying, I've asked for help. Um, I needed help and I'm now better because of that. Totally. And watching the impact that that story has on other, other young blokes or blokes in general um, is amazing to say, well, if he can tell that story, he can say he needed help and he can say that he sought it and he's still here and he's still okay, I can do that too. Um, and so I truly think that to, for me, telling that story gives permission for other people around me to be vulnerable and, and, you know, seek help from me or whoever else it is. When you reflect on being suicidal now, does it shock you to realise that it got to that point? Not one bit. Um, not one bit. You know, I think I will probably have to come to terms with um, dealing with suicidal suicidal ideations for a very long time if not the rest of my life um i think that unfortunately um it's it's something that i'll probably always have to deal with and so i see how unhappy and unhealthy i was um, and that is shocking but for me it's not shocking to say well i think i was you know suicidal at that point on the other side of it though how do you see being where you are now in a position to help so many people where you're so passionate and invested in what you do in improving the lives of other men to be where you are now from where you were it's it's a whole other ball game it's quite you know incredible that and i'm sure a path that you never saw yourself walking down yeah look i think i was always going to go into the social sort of justice space. Um, I was always going to work in health. That was, um, for me, something I was always passionate and interested in. Um, But then I think the mental illness journey of my own experience made me really resonate with, with, I guess, helping other people through their mental illness. Um, For me, um, there are a whole lot of skills and tools that I needed and the people around me needed, um, and I didn't have them and they didn't have them. So now... One of the things that I guess um, married perfectly is I, I came across the Banksy Project and, and the whole concept of preventative tools and preventative structures and programs and I fell in love and I went, you know, how can I give more people the skills, particularly blokes, um, so they don't have to go through the challenges and the darkness that I went through or if they are heading that way, how can we make that easier and help them recover quicker? How does the Banksy Project work? Look, it's, it's an amazing organisation that I'm so passionate about. I think one of the things that I really like to emphasise is I'm not the founder, um, which, which I think takes 
um, some of the bias out of it. I'm a community member who fell in love with this concept and I'm so passionate to now spread this to as many people as possible. Um, we're all about preventative and early intervention programs. So giving blokes the skills they need before crisis rather than waiting for crisis to occur and picking up the pieces. Um, we do it in a peer setting. It's, you know, if, if I'm working with a community group, say it's in rural New South Wales where we have programs, if I was to go and run programs out in rural New South Wales, they're going to say, well, who the hell are you? Um, you live in um, Maroubra Beach, you know, you, you have no idea you don't get what it. you're going through. Exactly. Um, whereas what, what we really emphasise with um, with the Banksia project and um, is to head out to those programs, those communities, and give the, the skills and the tools to empower those community members to support each other. Mm. We just provide a structure and support, and what we also provide is clinical supervision so that, as I said, hopefully we can prevent the need of that clinical intervention and crisis point. But if someone is probably more acute than they may be thought, we like to provide a really clear triage and actually be the catalyst for them seeking qualified support. Mm. So it's really uh, that teacher man to fish scenario. Absolutely. And I'm a terrible fisherman, but if I can help them with their mental health, then, uh, <laughs> then I've done my job. And what is the power of community in all this in trying to improve the mental health situation and, and empower men? How pivotal is community to that and why is that? Look, I, I think community and connection is, is absolutely fundamental in, in making sure everyone is healthier and happier. Um, I, I use the example of a lot, a lot that for whatever reason, it's a different conversation, one that I don't need to have, but Australian men are in a box and being in that box is causing us to harm ourselves and to harm people around us. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest intervention points that we need to be better at is community intervention. Um, you know, it's very hard for a clinician to identify signs and symptoms if that bloke is only going to seek help once a month or once every three months or, you know, even longer between sessions, whereas your best mate or your, your teammate or your colleague or maybe your partner identifies, okay, well, Jack used to behave like this. Jack used to be the really outgoing, energetic, fun guy, and all of a sudden he's starting to change. Um, noticing those changes in behaviour, those subtle changes that all add up. Mm. And I think if we can give community members the skills to identify the changes and identify the challenges and then be able to intervene early, hopefully we can get those guys seeking that help if it's connection or if it's whatever they need so that they don't go down that crisis point. I mean, it's a fantastic setup that you guys have there, which is average blokes teaching other average blokes or being there for them and being that vehicle towards finding help and, and taking that next step that's a lot more approachable perhaps for some than stepping into a psychologist's office. But you still have psychologists and mental health professionals there as a part of it. That's how it works, isn't it? Yeah, so so we run what we call our growth rooms, which are regular meetups for blokes. Um, you know, there's a whole range of um, different meetups. Both, sorry, I just lost my lights there. Um, <laughs> you both. Can you get that light back on? There we yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's um, so good. So, so we run growth rooms, which are regular meetups for blokes. Um, it's usually once a fortnight or once a month. As I said, it's it's everyday peers running the program, but they are going through the program just as much as anyone else. So they're going through their own journey. They're not experts. Um, what we provide those facilitators is modules designed by mental health clinicians. So we're getting these facilitators, these everyday blokes, to teach other blokes about the importance of sleep or screen time or substance abuse or diet, um, but then also things like how to communicate emotions, 
how to support a mate when they might need it. Um, you know, the importance of emotions like forgiveness or empathy or things like that, a whole range of practical skills so that when challenges pop up, they can navigate them safely. Um, what we then provide is an on-call clinician so that if someone in that two-hour session has a bit of a challenge and, and they perhaps need a bit of a, extra support, our facilitators will call that clinician and say, hey, I'm just sitting here with Jack. He's had a bit of a challenge tonight. Something's come up that's been quite tough for him. Um, can you have a chat? And so what that's doing is it's taking any sort of risk out of that volunteer right. um, hand and putting it into a professional's hand and keeping those participants and volunteers safe. Yeah, perfect. And I think that's how it needs to be. It can't be all clinical or, or all community-based with with no sort of professional insight. It's about balancing out that picture. Uh, but I love that the idea of having it being delivered by people in the community of those who are seeking help and and really normalizing it and that way giving it um you know constant room to grow and and spread because if you can have uh one person in a particular circle be upskilled or, or made aware of these kinds of conversations and how to have them then that partic- that has a ripple effect th- through a wide circle and that and continues to spread out so um yeah, it's, it's something that's so important and I guess groundbreaking in lots of ways. What sort of impact have, has it been having since you've joined? Yeah, look, I think one of the things that's really important to identify as well is that we, we see these as a gym for the mind. So they're not just for people who are mentally unwell or mentally struggling. We really like to emphasise the concept of these are for people that are healthy, but let's maintain that health and well-being. These are for everyday blokes who just want to stay connected and supported. They may be starting to feel a little bit challenged or a little bit unsupported, but most importantly, it's about maintaining mental fitness and mental well-being so that they can navigate challenges safely. Yeah, um, I really like the way that you've put put it, and that that's that's really important. I think for men to feel comfortable connecting to it and framing it in that sort of language, and totally agree that we're all on the mental health spectrum you know if you're alive then you you have mental health to look after and it's about separating mental illness from looking after your mental health and and your mental fitness and knowing that in the same way that you have to maintain your body you have to maintain your your mental health because just because you're you're in a good place now doesn't mean you'll stay that way if you don't manage it and do the right things to try and stay on top of it so i think the more we can uh, relate it to physical health and, and have it be seen in a similar light whereas it's, it's something that you have to constantly manage the better off people will will be because uh, prevention is the best cure which obviously is what you guys live yeah absolutely and and i think we're, as as you touched on earlier we're, we're seeing the impact of that you know it's absolutely amazing um, both in urban and rural environments in sporting teams in corporate environments it's supporting community members to support each other. Um, and, you know, I think of one one participant who went through one of our rural programs out in, in Dubbo. Um, he's an hour and a half west of Dubbo and he travels in every day for the program. He said it's been, you know, the hardest um, 18 months of his life with, with drought and fire, as well as kids, you know, going through HSC and living overseas and, and now into COVID. And his measures of resilience and happiness have actually doubled during this period. Um, wow. So he's he's twice as confident in dealing with challenges now compared to where he was at the start of our program. Um, you know, we've we've had participants that are measuring. You know, now that during COVID, we've run all our programs virtually. 
we've had participants in three sessions, you know, and that's six hours, saying that they're 25% happier, they're 30, 30% more resilient and 45% um, more connected, which is just amazing. Fantastic. What has it taught you about men's mental health overall and what men have in common and what's particularly needed to improve the state of men's mental health that we have in Australia? I think my biggest learning around men's mental health is that men have just as much emotion as women. Um, you know, I think a lot of the time men get put into this pigeonhole of, you know, we don't experience emotion or it's not it's not okay for us to express that. And I actually I really enjoy challenging that stereotype now and saying, look, if if you're a bloke, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what you look like or what you do for work. If you've got emotion, you need to find a space to express that. It might not be, you know, in every conversation you have, but you need to find your safe space to be vulnerable, to talk about whatever it is that you're facing, both good and bad, so that you're not resonating, sorry, you're not ruminating over those challenges and keeping them bottled up inside. Um, I think that there's a couple of things that are really important that to be to be really upfront a lot of men will open up for the first time to a woman in their life so i think there's really important role for girls to play in this conversation to say that you might be the catalyst for that bloke sort of identifying as a challenge first and foremost Mm. Um, but also i think it's really important that other men break down those barriers and and make it okay for the the blokes around them to be vulnerable Um, and as i said i think in safe ways they need to break that ice themselves first. And what do you see when in these growth rooms and the work you do, perhaps someone who's new, they see another man who opens up and, and tells it like it is and, and is vulnerable. What what does that do for the person who's perhaps looking at this stuff for the first time? I think it, it, it physically, metaphorically just lifts a whole weight off their shoulders. It says, wow, this is a place where I can actually just come to and talk about my emotions. You know, there's a whole range of different programs. Uh, you know, some some blokes feel more comfortable in something like a men's shed, which is let's come together, we'll, we'll create, we'll build, and hopefully we'll start talking about our emotions. I would say our growth room is almost the next step from that, and it's saying we're coming together to purely talk about our well-being and our emotions and our mental health, and that's the purpose of our of our meetup. Um, and that's not always easy. And, you know, we've had guys drive to our program, sit out the front in their car and go, is this for me? Do I need to do this? You know, I don't know if I can walk into this room. They've done it and then now they've been participants. So I'm thinking of one individual participant for 18 months. He's now a facilitator and he's starting to work out how he can get more involved in, in other capacities with the Banksia project. So I have no doubt for anyone listening, you're probably going to go, I couldn't think of anything worse. Uh, and But I, I really emphasise that, I'd say three sessions in, you just go, wow, I found my team. I found a a group of blokes around me that are there for me, thick and thin. I can talk about whatever I need to and they've got my back and that's a really exciting thing. And I guarantee so many of the benefits that you would get from seeing a psychologist but you don't have to do it alone and you don't have to do it in as formal a setting and go through a lot of those things which are really hold people back and make people feel uncomfortable so it's such a important stepping stone onto that if it's needed um, and just a fantastic way of making this conversation normalized and more approachable and obviously relevant through all these different sort of communities and i think teaching communities how to do it for themselves 
is genius and is is a way of doing it where it's going to last because it doesn't depend on you guys constantly having to visit or like there's only a few people in the country who know how to teach people to do these sorts of things you know anyone can do it if they're if they're made aware of the the things that they need to be looking out for um so i think it's it's absolutely the way forward how do you go these days in making sure that you are looking after yourself and making yourself a priority and not getting too caught up in everyone else because it sounds like that's that still takes up a huge amount of your energy so what things do you do to ensure that you're all right too Look, I think, you know, there's a whole range of things. I think one of the first realisations I had to make is I'm not responsible for solving other people's problems, um, but also that my mental health isn't based on what they think of me. My sense of wellness and sense of individualism and who I am isn't based on what other people think of me. I love doing that and I get a huge buzz out of helping other people, but I need to know that I'm still me and a really good person in myself without that gratification. Um, and that's something that I had to really come to terms with early on is to say the outcomes of people who are reaching out to Banksia or myself or even the outcomes of Banksia as an organisation isn't me and I'm separate to that. Um, the other things I, I really try and do is obviously focus on, on physical health and I, I love staying fit and active, um, obviously being a little bit different during uh, COVID, but I do enjoy um, staying connected in a community in that sense as well. So I, I work with a lot of different community groups um, I, I sort of work in a, I do some, uh, I train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Bondi Junction. Um, I'm involved with Lululemon in Bondi Beach. Um, I uh, train a, a coach, a, a women's rugby team, a whole range of things to try and stay connected into community. Um, but also for me, it's about letting the people in my circle and it doesn't matter how many there are, but letting them know one of the, some of the things that challenge me some of the behaviours that start popping up when I feel challenged and most importantly, what I like to do to make myself feel better because what I always emphasise to other people is when you're having one of those days that absolutely sucks and you feel like everything's just hitting you head on, sometimes the last thing you feel like doing is going to take that behaviour and go, I'm going to go and do this because I know it's good for me and it'll release the endorphins or whatever else. Yeah, just too much. If my partner, yeah, yeah, but if my partner, um, Catherine, can say, look, you're behaving like this, which for me, I know that's one of your triggers. Let's get you outside. Let's go get a coffee down at the beach and go for a walk. Yeah. And, you know, start triggering my health um, and my self-care that she's involved in that self-care loop. Yeah. So let's let other people in, make them aware of what you're really like and how you act when perhaps things aren't great and the ways of pulling yourself out of that and make it a team effort and do the same for them um, because it's, it's only when we keep stuff totally to ourselves and, and others actually have no way of knowing what's really going on that we find ourselves in real trouble. Absolutely. And one of the things that I also do and I, I teach a lot of the guys that go through our programs is one, identify your own self-care loop, go and be proactive, knowing all those things that we just spoke about, you know, but most importantly, who can be a part of your care system. Um, but also be really explicit with what you need. Um, I think, I think back to that conversation that I had with my best mate who I told that I had mental illness and he's probably just gone, wow, I have no idea what to do. Do I, do I get closer? Do I ask more questions? Do I push it or do I give him space and not push it and talk about anything but the elephant in the room of his mental illness? And, and so I think there's a whole range of people that probably do that when mental health challenges pop up and 
these conversations pop up. And so one of the things that I try and do as well as get others to do is be really explicit and say to that mate who, who may have no idea how to help, just say, all I need from you is just text me once a week, say, how are you going? And then he goes, well, shit, I've got no idea what to do, but all I need to do is text him once a week and that's my job. And so that's one thing I've had to learn, be explicit with what I need so that people know how to support me. Mm. And I try and articulate that to get other people to do that too. That's great advice. How do you view life now? Look, um, I think I've probably got more of a sense of reality. Um, I think challenge is inevitable. That's something I probably used to run from and I'd say, no, challenges probably aren't meant to be a thing. And, you know, the fact that I'm going through challenges is um, unique to me. Whereas I think one of the things now that I've learned to appreciate is they're inevitable. Um, but being able to navigate them safely, I think, is, is a fundamental. Um, but I also think one of the things that I'm really, really focused on now is the little things. The outcome is, is an amazing byproduct, but it's about the journey, about the individual relationships and conversations and, you know, interactions that we have every day and, and they contribute to a bigger picture and, and that's something that I, I really try and focus on. Yeah, and what you really need, you've already got. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's another thing that I've tried to, I've actually started during COVID is a daily gratitude practice. And, and um, if you had have told me, you know, eight or nine years ago that I was going to start doing a daily gratitude practice, I probably would have just laughed in your face. Um, but, you know, I'm really enjoying just spending some time going, well, what's happening that's really good at the moment? Because I think we get really good at identifying all the challenges and I've found that, that gratitude practice to be really helpful. Well, the bad sticks out and the good takes work to recognise and appreciate, uh, but that's work well worth doing. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just, I just want to say thanks for everything that you do in this space and it's stunning to hear your story and and see the man that you are now and i just want to acknowledge you for what you do and say respect and, and keep going thank you very much i, I really appreciate that and you know I'm, I'm very proud and i'm the lucky one if you're a fan of the work we're doing or have a suggestion for the show please rate us on apple podcasts and leave a comment you can follow Young Blood Men's Health Matters on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and visit our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au, to stay up to date. And most importantly, if this conversation resonated with you, share it with someone you love and start a conversation of your own. A huge thank you to our local business supporters who've joined our mission to change the lives of young men for the better and help make this possible. We're all in it together. This is Young Blood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.